Welcome to Exposing Mold, the podcast, where I, Keely Severson, Eric Johnson, and Alicia Swamy dive into all things toxic mold. If you remember from our last few episodes, we were talking about the Lake Tahoe outbreak that warranted the CDC to come out and investigate and ultimately form the 1988 Holmes chronic fatigue definition. As we dived into the history of that, we saw that EBV numbers were elevated in many people, not just sick people. And this kind of debunked the theory that it was reactivated or a mutated version of Epstein-Barr virus. And it seemed to point to something else happening with lowered immune function, where a lot of people, even if they weren't sick, had their immune function lowered so low that their EBV numbers looked like they were reactivated even with no symptoms. And in a sense, this kind of began to normalize chronic illness and lowered immunity within the medical community. Eric, can you talk to us a little bit about that? The first newspaper article in 1986 was about a mystery illness striking Incline Village, how the kissing disease had um, gotten out of control. And at this time, it was well known that adults, healthy adults, simply didn't get the the kissing disease. Generally, everybody's 90% of the population has had it by the time they reach adulthood, and you've got lifelong immunity. So when the adult mono or the, the EBV illness started sweeping the country, doctors began calling the Center for Disease Control and reporting it. But as far as they were concerned, unless you really did something to mess up your own immune system, it wasn't going to be a problem. The uh, Lake Tahoe outbreak showed for the first time that there could be a large group of people, hundreds of people, with this chronic Epstein-Barr virus syndrome all in one place that suggested something else was going on. So the uh, Center for Disease Control, as, as we talked about, did send epidemiologists out to check on the situation. And they found that the um, immunity had been lowered throughout the general population. In fact, uh, in the book, Osler's Web, Dr. Uh, Cheney tested uh, somebody who was apparently healthy and was confused that he seemed to have the same subliminal defect, but no signs or symptoms. And as the outbreak proceeded, all of a sudden this guy caught a virus and joined the rest of us in having the full-blown signs and symptoms of the syndrome. I mean, the paralysis, the fatigue, the sore throat, the swollen glands, completely devastated, laid out by this. So it was really clear at that time that this was a ticking time bomb, that something was happening that just required some final trigger, and EBV was only the most common trigger. When the um, CDC assembled the chronic fatigue syndrome definition, they weren't completely clear about that. They were laying it out that there was something that required further investigation But they didn't really want to scare the public at that time. So they kind of left it up to doctors and researchers to follow up, which, to my amazement, doctors completely failed to do. In fact, as soon as the word of the new name, the chronic fatigue syndrome, began to circulate in late 1986, doctors who had been treating stress and depression and fatigue with vitamins and green smoothies, they started diagnosing people with chronic fatigue syndrome 
And I would call them up, doctors in Reno and in Sacramento and in the Bay Area. They were advertising themselves as chronic fatigue syndrome specialists, and they were only treating stress and a headache. And I'd call, call them up and I'd say, well, there's actually more to it than that. This is really some kind of immune dysfunction. And they're, they're going, well, who the hell are you? I'm going, well, I'm a survivor and I'm a selected patient prototype for this new syndrome, so I can tell you a thing or two about it. And their attitude was, you don't tell me anything. I'm the doctor. You know, I tell you. And they started literally transforming chronic fatigue syndrome into uh, just another new name for stress, depression, and fatigue. And that's when I realized that there was something seriously wrong with the doctor and researcher mind, because not only did they fail to respond to the evidence in the newspapers of immune dysfunction, but when they were told about it, they refused to accept it. So that uh, started me on my journey of thinking, well, eventually people are going to want to know what really happened here, what the backstory behind chronic fatigue syndrome is. So I began preparing myself so that when somebody finally did come, I'd be able to explain and clear up some of this confusion. Sorry, you're stuck with us. No real doctors ever came. (laughs) Well, in a way, I began to think of chronic fatigue syndrome not only as a test of the uh, academic acumen of the medical profession, but as a test of integrity. They've seen the evidence that there's more to it than just fatigue. So the question is, are they going to respond, follow up like an honest researcher would? So I thought, in a way, this is a, a test to find out who's going to act like the real researcher and let the real researchers unveil themselves by coming forward. So you're stuck with it because it was you. Well, I like being stuck with you. But anyways, <laughs> I've heard you mention this before, that the vagueness around the 1980s, Holmes' definition of chronic fatigue was vague, vague by intention. And I'm wondering what you mean by that. Well, uh, Dr. Stephen Strauss had his own ideas about how to pursue this problem. And he really wanted to clear the viral theory out of his way and resorted to a rather disingenuous trick of trying to portray chronic fatigue syndrome as being hysteria and baseless in order to accomplish that. And from the time he started to throw his weight around in the Holmes Committee, his plan was clear to force Dr. Gary Holmes, who was a a junior epidemiologist, I mean, the lowest rank of anybody there, to force him to make it as vague as possible in hopes that the syndrome would fall apart and things would revert into his court, that he would be able to revitalize what he called sporadic neurasthenia, which is actually a fairly good name, probably better than chronic fatigue syndrome. However, what Dr. Strauss wanted to pursue was not a cluster problem, it was sporadic. So that would not fit the Lake Tahoe outbreak. So it would still remain unexplained. So yes, the syndrome, the Holmes chronic fatigue syndrome definition was made vague by design. And I talked to Dr. Cheney about that. And I was worried, especially about the name, going, well, this will probably convince people that the major issue is chronic fatigue. Dr. Cheney said, well, Possibly, but there are some good people in the CDC, and there are some qualified, competent scientists out there. They'll see what the problem is, and they'll come back and ask us. But by 1992, 
four years after the uh, Holmes definition had been published, it was clear, even to Dr. Cheney, that nobody was going to come back and clear this up. Was there anything in that definition that pointed to lower immune function? Nothing. It was completely left out. The uh, Holmes committee even said at the time, Dr. James Jones, one of the co-authors and one of the Epstein-Barbar's experts, said, this syndrome is really more of a heads up, more of a, a pointer than anything else. It's not intended to clinically define the syndrome. It's just to apprise the medical profession that an investigation is underway to categorize these patients. And that's it. But doctors didn't take it that way. They treated the symptoms as being the sum total of what chronic fatigue syndrome is. So if you tell them about the low natural killer cell function, the elevated viral titers, the um, self-low readings, the low B cell counts, or any of the other evidence, they would say, well, then that's not chronic fatigue syndrome because chronic fatigue syndrome has no evidence. And your cluster in Lake Tahoe wasn't the only cluster at this time, right? It was a bunch of clusters breaking out and, and having some kind of mystery illness just all around the nation at this time, correct? The only one that we know of from the winter of 1984 to 1985 that matched the outbreak nature of Lake Tahoe was Dr. Charles Lapp's symphony orchestra outbreak in South Carolina. Dr. Uh, David Bell in Lindenville, who is often thought to be part of the driving force behind the chronic fatigue syndrome, his outbreak didn't happen till, until after the Holmes investigation was over. And since the CDC wasn't discussing it, at the time of the Holmes committee meeting in 1987, they didn't even know about it. Dr. Cheney and Dr. Bell met for the first time only several weeks before the Holmes Committee meeting, so that evidence wasn't even under consideration. So for all intents and purposes, the main event, the primary reason for the coining of the chronic fatigue syndrome was the scary, contagious nature of the Lake Tahoe outbreak. Such a killer twist that it, to it, I mean, usually if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, it's a duck, you know, but we're seeing something maybe a little bit different here because, you know, part of me can understand why these researchers are all attached to finding this virus that would do this because you almost have to really have this experience with these molds to believe <laughs> what it can do to you this way. Even the patients, even the ones who went through this progress, they don't believe it. They can know that they've got a mold story and understand that they were kind of having problems with mold, but then the virus came along and hit them harder. They want the virus investigated. I mean, it made sense to me because when Dr. Cheney asked me to um, serve as a prototype, I initially tried to refuse. I told him that this prior, this precursor mold problem is going to be such an interference, such a such confusion that if the Center for Disease Control finds out about it, they'll probably say, well, that's it. You just have allergies. And they'll use that as a reason to get rid of this, this syndrome completely without ever doing any investigation. And Dr. Cheney assured me that researchers are capable of walking and chewing gum at the same time. And a little thing like this mold problem is going to throw them off. And I thought, well, considering that the clusters were all in moldy buildings, 
that elevates the toxic mold up to a critical cofactor because it very much appears that without that mold exposure, these clusters would not have occurred. So you firmly hold the position that doctors who specialize in chronic fatigue syndrome or advertise these services, they all hold a medical duty to kind of come back and look at this, to understand what what they're treating. Yeah. I mean, if, if you have evidence, critical evidence that's relevant to solving the mystery, I believe that professional does have a, a duty, an obligation to speak up about it. Like imagine a, a researcher hearing about Polly Murray and the finding of Borrelia burgdorferi in Lyme, Connecticut, and deciding to say nothing about it. Maybe he's written a book saying the aches and pains and the juvenile rheumatoid arthritis that they were diagnosing at this time. Well, maybe that's just due to lifestyle or you know some kind of fluke, and they're selling supplements and you know, smoothies for, for Lyme disease, if they find out that there's a really solid piece of evidence, like a spirochete in common in all these sick children, they, they better say something because if they don't, that's deliberately withholding evidence. Is that what you think happened here? Was this a situation of deliberately withholding evidence? Absolutely. Well, even going back to the Epstein-Barr virus, you had mentioned prior that the test titers were changed to make it seem like, you know, this was normal. These numbers, even though they're actually high, they changed it to show that this is normal. You know, this is normal for you to have this. Yeah, when the, uh, the test was first contrived, they had a, a reference range that easily put people with fluctuating Epstein-Barr virus titers squarely into the middle of a diagnosis for chronic Epstein-Barr virus syndrome. I mean, there was no doubt. The uh, Center for Disease Control even referred to it as a disease at this time. And this was a definitive diagnosis. But as the evidence fell apart, because not everybody with these fluctuating titers would convert into having signs and symptoms, they changed it and began treating a, a lower level of Epstein-Barr virus titers as being just a normal condition of life. And in this way, it served to hide the fact that the kissing disease was so unusual to see in adults that it shouldn't get out of control that way. And now, now doctors apply this test and go, yes, you have fluctuating EBV titers, but it's no big deal. When 30 years ago, it was a huge deal. And this is why you say they're, they're beginning to normalize illness. And they've done the same thing with mold exposure. They now say, well, it's perfectly normal for a certain percentage of the population to have problems with mold. And that's just your tough luck. When, if you look back in history, these kind of complaints, this hyperreactivity was completely unknown. It wasn't in the medical literature. It wasn't documented. We don't even have complaints that are consistent with people abandoning buildings due to mold. And now we've got doctors saying, ah, so you've got a problem with mold. You just need to take supplements and take better care of yourself. They're not looking at the underlying problem to see how quickly this change has come upon us. I know this is one reason that you always stick to stachybotrys or trypothecine-producing molds because you're interested in knowing what is it about these molds that might be possibly affecting our immune function. Yeah, any researcher automatically goes to the most egregious example of whatever phenomenon that he wants to investigate. 
I mean, you look for the most spectacular example because that's where the answers will be easiest to find. And clearly, when it comes to toxic mold, the dreaded black mold stachybotrys stood out in such a huge way that if you want to find out what's changing, this is the one to look at. And I know that some new information came out from Mold Congress 2019 where they said, you know, sometimes stachybotrys doesn't give the warning signs. Some kind, sometimes it just drops, drops your immune function with, without warning signs. Yeah. Dr. Chin Yang, the uh, noted mycologist and editor of the 1994 Saratoga Springs Proceeding Manual, which is essentially the Bible for the indoor air quality movement. I mean, they release a book every few years, every four years, they update this book, which is the state of the art for what mold is doing. Well, they reported stachybotrys as a problem in 1994 and speculated in the book that perhaps this was due, or this was connected with the fairly recently coined chronic fatigue syndrome. They've even got two chapters dedicated to wondering if stachybotrys in particular is connected with chronic fatigue syndrome. To my way of thinking, this means they want an answer. So I thought that if a prototype for the syndrome came and told them, they would be delighted to finally have an answer to this. Well, at the 2019 Fort Lauderdale uh, Mold Congress, Dr. Chin Yang put on a presentation and he included stachybotrys and talked about its health effects. And he mentioned something that I hadn't known about. I guess this was not completely hidden, but you really had to go deep into mycology to have heard about this little trick. But that stachybotrys has such severe neurological and immunosuppressive effects that if you are close to this stuff, you're going to have overt signs and symptoms. You're going to have headaches. You're going to have infections. You're going to have some warning that something bad is going on. And it's been accepted that stachybotrys will make itself known to you because of these horrific effects. Well, what Dr. Yang explained is that they discovered an evil twin. Stachybotrys has like a, an evil twin clone that is so close in appearance the morphology, its growth, its color, everything about it is so close to Stachybotrys charterum that it's indistinguishable except by genetic testing. It's the only way to know. The microscopy and all the tests for the toxins, it won't reveal this stuff. But it's called Stachybotrys chlorohalonata, and it lacks some of the more overt neurotoxic compounds, but still retains all of the immunosuppressive ones the um, donabellanes and the atronomes, uh, two classes of compounds that shut off cell division, mitosis. So your cells are literally unable to function. Its cellular machinery is shut off. You have no ability to self-repair. Your capacity to, for cellular regeneration is completely shut down, but you don't have the neurological signs to, to tell you that your immune system is failing. So this evil twin, the Stachybotrys chlorohalonata, may have been responsible for the times that they thought Stachybotrys is not harmful because these people don't have all the symptoms and the doctors didn't connect that this is why their patients were falling apart because their immune systems were gone. I know that you were really surprised that no one left that mold congress and, and rang the alarm bell. Very much so. 
I mean, we knew stachybotrys was interesting before, but now if you add this onto it, Dr. Dr. Yang said, we now believe that in many cases where stachybotrys was confusing, this explains it. And this is probably disabling people in a way that doctors don't recognize because they don't know the pattern and how to look for it. And I really expected that everybody at that mold congress was going to come out and warn the world, not only because they want people to know about the, what these toxic molds can do, but as a way to raise awareness and bring further attention to the variety of how these, these different molds can affect us. And yet again, just another example of deliberate ignoring. Yeah, for uh, the very mold experts that I thought were going to be at the top of their game to fail to speak about this, and then later on start saying, well, stachybotrys is just one of many molds, and we just, just got to concentrate on the big picture. If you've got water damage, water leaks, we'll just clean it up, and we won't really pay attention to the details here. Well, if you have a very small colony of stachybotrys chlorohalonata, you might not be finding all the other molds that add up to something that they would consider to be a threat. And yet a very small bit of this stuff is still fully capable of shutting down your immune function. So people should know about it. I wanted to ask you, I know some people have already asked me, why do you guys focus so much just on stachybotrys? Not everyone gets sick from stachybotrys. You know, what would you say to someone like that? I mean, is stachybotrys always found when it's present? I guess maybe that's a better question. Well, the fact that stachybotrys is such a terrible mold means that you can have uh, an exposure somewhere, not even in your house. You could have it at work, at school. It could have been years ago, and it could have disabled your immune function, opened you up to a chronic infection. And we don't really know how long the effects of this toxicity last. So it's not inconceivable that there is a lingering neurological damage that goes on years after exposure. And we don't know because it's not really looked into. So the idea that we have to find stachybotrys in every case of illness doesn't take into account just how powerful it is and that you could be picking up exposure elsewhere. And there's one other little thing that is purely theoretical, but we've, we've got some evidence for it. And this isn't being discussed, but because stachybotrys has such a high demand for water, it's got such a high throughput for moisture, it's a really prolific producer of what are called gutation droplets. Black oozing muck on the outside of the colony, and some of these crystalline fragments get all of the spores. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nasty stuff. But basically, it's like sap. It's like tree sap, except it's, it's extremely poisonous, and it dries, and it, be, it becomes extremely brittle, crystalline, and breaks up into fragments. Now, these fragments can become airborne, and because they are essentially the purified toxin, these crystalline toxins, they lack the structure that would be used and polymerase chain reaction, the PCR testing to identify it. It would be like a chemical vapor or fungal shrapnel, if you will, that can't be detected by the test that they're using because it's absolutely pure chemical with no PCR signature. 
This is one of the big reasons why you're not a fan of testing, relying on testing for all the answers. Yeah, we've already known for a long time that for every spore of stachy that they find on your standard air sampling test, they were picking up at least 500 fragments, toxic fragments that are possibly even more damaging to you because if you inhale a Sacchibotrys spore, it'll get caught in your lungs and expel, whereas the fragments go deep. They penetrate the alveoli, come into contact with the blood. So these fragments are far, far more damaging than the whole spores, and yet these weren't even being taken into account. So no, I am definitely not a fan of testing because the testing methods don't detect and don't correlate what people are complaining about. Yeah, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about that because that's a big thing that comes up with people. They get really attached to their tests for their house, all test types really. But the more I speak with you, the more the question gets brought up that we can't ignore. What happens if there's part of this illness that can't currently be tested for? Yeah, mold experts, they should have seen the signs by now that their tests don't quite correlate to our illness and wondered about it. But instead, they argue with us and they say, well, if we don't find anything on our tests, then perhaps you're just sick for some other reason, or maybe it's all in your head. Develop a new test. It's like they're stuck in these constraints, these, this box that people can't get out of. If it doesn't exist in the literature, it's not a valid thing. If it, we don't have a test for it, it doesn't exist. Like what kind of moronic, idiotic thinking is that? It's sort of an academic mind blindness where the faith in their peer-reviewed literature has overwhelmed their thinking to such an extent that they're not even looking for new clues. They're only looking to disprove things they don't understand, rule them out. That's definitely the sense that I get, trying to disprove things that they don't understand or discredit things they don't understand or flat out mock and ridicule things they don't understand. Yeah, the lack of scientific curiosity is astounding. It's just amazing that when people manifest confusion about chronic fatigue syndrome, it would be a simple matter, the natural thing, to ask the people that were there, look at the circumstances under which this syndrome was coined, and somehow it's the last thing people want to do. Now, I thought that uh, there must be at least a few researchers that really wanted, they talk about getting to the bottom of things, digging deeper, but if so, where are they? Let them show themselves. Researchers, show yourselves now. This is a call to action. SOS, SOS. Yeah, I, I think we really need to take a good hard look at the medical profession, their methods, and find out how it is possible that 35 years after this famous incident, that not a single researcher has ever come back to to revisit the evidence that started this entire confusing chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah, going back to what you were talking about with Strauss, um, I don't know if you want to go there, but there's even a letter that he drafted to another epidemiologist saying chronic fatigue would just evaporate. Yeah, um, by 1992, Dr. Strauss was fairly confident that his strategy of trivializing the syndrome and spreading rumors that there was no evidence, and this in combination with the confusing, stupid name, had been a total success. And he began to work with Dr. Keiji Fukuda on redefining chronic fatigue syndrome. Now, 
you really have to ask yourself, or at least an um, analytical person should ask themselves, what is the point of going to the expense and going through the process of creating a new name a new or a new definition? You would think that they would add value, that some of the evidence that's been accumulated over the years would be factored in, it would be improved somehow. And yet there was nothing about the Fakuda definition of 1994, which improved upon the Holmes definition in any way. What Stephen Strauss wished to do was redefine it under the pretense of giving an appearance that they were moving forward when the reality was by creating a new definition, it was going to be based on opinions and no longer would it be connected to the original Holmes, which is based on real people with real evidence that you can come and find out what happened. The uh, Fakuda definition was a pure abstraction based on nothing, nothing but opinions, based on the signs and symptoms of the homes, which as we know, mean very little because they don't really lead you to what the underlying dysfunction is. So when Dr. Um, Strauss, when the, when the plans were finalized for the redefinition, Dr. Stephen Strauss wrote what's called the Fakuda letter. He wrote a letter to Fakuda expressing his relief that the viral concepts had finally been weeded out, that chronic fatigue syndrome as a discrete entity, that that was over, it had been evaporated, and now they can move on and decide at their leisure how best to proceed with this entity that was formerly the old chronic fatigue syndrome and was now the new Fukuda chronic fatigue syndrome. So we do actually have a copy of the Fukuda letter, right, Alicia? Yeah, we, we do. We actually have the, the letter. Eric is a Houdini over here. He just pulls out resources left and right. So if you guys haven't been checking out our podcast, um, below, if you look into our description, we do have a resources section. And for every single episode, we list the evidence for everything that we discuss. So this is not, um, you know, grandiose claims. This is not stuff we're pulling out of midair. These are things that actually happened. There's research on it. And also, you know, the people that we have been talking about also do exist as well. So if you're interested in learning more and just diving more into the actual data and the actual evidence, feel free. Go crazy with that uh, resources resources area. And I don't have direct links, so just feel free to copy and paste that into your browser to go ahead and take a look at whatever you're interested in. Um, but again, we want to say thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Again, it was another crazy ride. We, we talked a little bit about Stachy Boris, and uh, I guess Stachy has an evil twin. Um, that <laughs> we'll end up uh, covering later on in the podcast. Um, and we'll also, on our next episode, we'll talk more about that Fukuda letter and that Fukuda definition. And we'll talk about more about what Strauss had addressed with Fukuda in that letter as well. We do want to let you guys know that we already have a crazy list of people that are ready to talk on our show. We have an interesting author that worked for the CDC, that wrote a book on all of this Stachyboris sick building syndrome stuff. And he has agreed to come on our show. And I am so excited. I have a copy of his book. 
We're reading it. We're taking notes. He has agreed to come on. He's preparing. Um, so we'll have him on soon. But we also have a great, great list of people that are ready to talk about their experiences, um, their research. We do have a few researchers that are um, willing to come on and chat with us. And uh, yeah, thank you again. Please, please like, share, comment, donate to our Patreon and our GoFundMe page. And we really appreciate you. Thank you again. And we'll see you next week. Bye.